0: Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Philippians chapter 1. The screen says Philippians 1, 1 through 8. We'll actually be stopping at verse 7 today. I apologize for my false advertising there. Um, We will only get through 7 verses in our time. We enter into the first message, proper as it were, of the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, Within our book sermon, we emphasized the essential nature of the book as it relates to unity and purity within the body. Unity, I'm going to uh, jump between the word unity and like-mindedness throughout the book. And purity, I'm going to jump between the word purity and Christ-mindedness. So we seek unto unity and purity, we seek unto like-mindedness and christ Mindedness, and that's how we are going to frame this book but but as Paul picked up that writing instrument or as amanuensis did so as the case may be uh, at that time an amanuensis being one that would write or scri- scribe for someone else uh, for one reason or another and we know that Paul used these um, because of the um, problems of of his own perhaps uh, health wise and such as he sought to pen the words of this epistle his motivation for doing so was not only to send along instruction and exhortation to the church what we find and, and the book sermon bore this out is that the epistle of paul to the philippians was not just a book about unity directly although that's the proper theological theme But it was really a thank you note too, wasn't it? It was a thank you note to the book, or to the people of Philippi. We addressed this last time, and as we'll see particularly in chapter 4, Epaphroditus was sent from Philippi to Paul, who was under house arrest in Rome, brought with him a monetary gift, as it would not be uncommon in such situations that the prisoner was responsible to provide for himself nearly entirely, rather than to be provided for by the state. Paul was deeply thankful for these blessings unto him by them. He wanted them to know it, and so he recognized them greatly, both at the beginning and at the end of the book in particular. The book is really bookended by these thanksgivings. And these thanksgivings uh, are are what we will consider today primarily in verses 1-7. through The Bible says in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord. Jesus Christ. We have what we might consider to be a very common salutation for a Pauline epistle. As we discussed last time we were together, Paul and Timothy both have their names on this epistle, and we don't exactly know why it is that Paul included Timothy. We know that Timothy was there when Paul visited Philippi. Timothy was very early in the ministry, very young in the ministry at that time, but he was most certainly there. Uh, It is now something like a decade later, right? It's something like 10 years after they had initially visited that church in Philippi. Philippi. Timothy was far more than just a helper and a fellow minister of Paul. He was essential to Paul's ministry at this point. Uh, he was his own son in the faith. He was very near and dear to Paul's heart. We also know from Acts chapter 17 that when Paul was driven out of really Berea and he was sent out of Macedonia into Achaea, going to Athens, he was driven out of Berea by the Thessalonians. Remember the Thessalonians did not like Paul. They kicked him out of their city. He fled for his life that city. They, he went to Berea. They actually chased him to Berea, where they caused trouble for him there, causing him to have to flee into Achaia, specifically to Athens for a very short period of time, and then to Corinth. But he left Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica at that time to continue the work. And so we recognize that Timothy uh, had, uh, in, in, his, in, in, in one sense, probably taken a huge step of responsibility in that region of Macedonia while he was there, uh, knowing that Paul had moved on without him uh, into Corinth for a time, while Paul and Silas remained behind, and so he had likely taken a huge step. He was probably well-known and well-loved within that region. And notice unto whom Paul writes here. He writes to the saints, that word there, saint, meaning the holy ones, and it speaks uh, not to dead people, who have been conferred upon some sort of veneration, right? Uh, There's no biblical precedent for the idea that uh, the dead should be venerated or elevated in spiritual status in some way, much less certainly worshipped or anything of the sort. Uh, This elevation does not have any spiritual weight behind it. Simply the idea of saints being those who are holy in Christ. Those who have stepped from darkness into light. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Saints were the believers of the Church of Philippi. But notice that this was not directed only to the saints here, but in a unique fashion, Paul specifically mentions with the bishops and deacons. Within the scope of our morning series in First Timothy, as most of you have been here for that, we've considered the nature of church authority, right, and church offices. We see these two offices, the bishop and the deacon, being spoken directly unto in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well. And we discussed in 1 Timothy, particularly in that 1 Timothy 3 set of messages, how that the offices of the bishop, the elder, and the pastor, as we see them presented in Scripture, are in fact, at least as far as the Bible presents them, the same office, right? And this concept is, is most clearly exemplified as I'll remind you this evening in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. There Peter writes, "...the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory which, uh, that shall be revealed." feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. So Peter writes to the elders among the people, the elders in the church, and he exhorts them unto two primary functions as elders. The first function is to feed the flock of God, and the second function was to take oversight over the flock of God. Now the word feed here that we find in the text is the word shepherd or pastor, the word Taking the oversight is regularly the the word translated in the Bible, bishop. It's just that uh, this is the verb form instead of the noun form, right? So it's not labeling. It's telling you what to do. So they were to bishop the church. To that end, we understand that the title for the minister, generally speaking in the New Testament, at least as Peter reflects it, the title would be elder. And the function of the elder was to pastor and bishop the church to feed and to oversee the church. And naturally, there might be men which were better at the pastoring and other men that were better at the bishoping. And so they would oftentimes have a plurality of elders as we know it from history because of this very fact. The scriptures, however, uh, don't speak either way to how many there ought to be or anything of the sort. So it is we find that the elder, the pastor, and the bishop can safely be considered simply from scriptural study as one office within the biblical teaching. To this end then, uh, it should not surprise us that Paul only speaks to the bishops and the deacons, right? He doesn't say to the bishops and the elders and the pastors and the deacons. That would be, as far as we know from scripture, Tremendously repetitious. Uh, So he says the bishops and the deacons. And it is for that reason that within the Baptist tradition, and specifically here at Legacy Baptist Church, we only recognize those two church offices. We recognize the pastor, bishop, elder, as the one who is ordained by the church to shepherd and lead the church. And then we recognize the deacon, who is ordained by the church to minister unto the ministers. And also, in this we would understand Paul's writings here, to be to the whole church, as we see him speak to the saints, but then in that, he specifically mentions the bishops and deacons, we can probably surmise that there's a reason. Why would Paul do this to Philippi, but not to Corinth? Why would Paul do this to Philippi, but not to the churches of Galatia, to the church at Ephesus? Why did he, why was he so careful to mention the bishops and the deacons in Philippi? To this end, seeing this this particular and unique statement, we might thus understand as we step into the book, and you ought to do this when you study, ask that question, why? Why here and not there? What What would be the importance of Paul mentioning the bishops and the deacons here, but not in Ephesians? Colossians. Well, maybe it is then that Paul has a message that he needs to give to the church, but he wants the bishops and the deacons to recognize or to look for that particular thing that he's telling them to do. That there's going to be a measure of instruction here that is going to need to be invoked by the authorities of the church. To that end, they need to perk their ears and be thinking about this from an authoritative perspective not just that Paul's authority but how are they what, what role do they have to play in the thing that Paul is speaking to it may also be that he's writing specifically to the bishops and deacons because this is kind of a thank you note right and so maybe it is that in this particular case he recognizes just how much it, it, the, the, the blessings that he has received from the church have been driven by church leadership and so he's going to make particular mention of them as a part of this thank you. It could be either way, we, but, but we ought to look for those things, right? Look for those things as we're studying the book. Verse 2 is somewhat standard, a very standard greeting. Grace be unto you in peace, grace and peace. Uh, the, this is a very common exhortation, a very common uh, expression from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads us right into the first element of Paul's message to them. Verse 3 and verse 4. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy. Paul tells the church that every time he goes to prayer and they come to mind, upon that remembrance of them, he is renewed in a sense of thanksgiving for them. And perhaps you understand this sentiment. When a friend or loved one comes to your mind and you think on them because of the blessings that they've given to you, you're thankful. And you just think on them, and when they come to mind, you, you just you stop and you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for them. Thank you for who they are. Thank you for what they've done. Thank you for what I've been given. Thank you for what I've learned. Thank you for how I've been blessed or how I've been benefited. When you see someone that has been given to you or, or, or something that has been given to you, your mind is filled with thanksgiving for the giver. And it is this sentiment that Paul expresses. He says, I'm thankful for you. Whenever he dedicates himself to prayer for them, they brought to his memory. It wells up a particular joy, a particular thanksgiving in that remembrance. And for what? What is it about this church that inspires such joyful thanksgiving when Paul kneels down to pray for them or when they come to his mind? And he tells us in verse 5, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The thing which Paul cites as being the cause of his deep thanksgiving and joy is, as he calls it, their fellowship in the gospel. And he says that this fellowship has been from the first day, presumably the day that he's met them, right, until this present time. Now, what does it mean, we would ask, that they have fellowship in the gospel? And why would it be this particular church that would cause him so much joy in this regard? That's an important question. The reason why it's such an important question is because I think that most Christians, when they read this, get this passage wrong. And I could be wrong. I'm in the minority in my interpretation of this passage. I'm going to say that several times within the scope of this sermon. I'm in the minority. I, I, I'm among the few, not the many, when it comes to how I interpret this passage. But I'm going to show you why I interpret it the way I interpret it. I'm going to give you a lot of reasons why. And then, of course, it'll be up to you to determine what you want to do with what I give you this evening. To answer these questions, we really need to root ourselves in the context, not only of this passage, but in the book itself. And in this word, fellowship. The word fellowship here is a very common word, koinonia. You've perhaps heard that word floating around. There's a lot of Bible study groups that are the Koinonia Bible study group in various churches or uh, ministries that talk about Koinonia. It's the word for fellowship. It's the word for coming together. And yet, it's not just the idea of talking together, but really it carries with it an idea of a partnership or a participation one with another. At face value. When Paul says the fellowship, your fellowship in the Gospel, we are tempted to think simply of what we might call the unity of the Spirit, right? The fact that you're a believer and I'm a believer, therefore we're, we're, we come together and we're unified in the Gospel and Paul is thankful for that. But I don't think that general idea of fellowship in the Gospel is what Paul is saying here. To understand why, I want to journey to all of the other places in Philippians and then beyond where this word fellowship, koinonia, is used. And not just that word, but its cognates. Pastor, what in the world is a cognate? A cognate is a word that has this, okay, I'm going to use another hard one. A cognate is a word that has the same etymological source as the word we're talking about. So, the word is koinonia. I'm not only going to show you where koinonia is used, but where koinoneo is used. Koinonia is the adjective, the noun form, koinoneo is the verb form. So they're different words, right? Because one's a verb and one's a substantive, but they're the same word in that they're both koinonea, it's just one's a verb and one's a substantive. So I'm going to show you those two. And you need to see this because I think that if we, if we, As we walk through this, it's going to show you a picture of what this word fellowship means and how Paul not just uses it in Philippians, but when Paul uses this word regularly within the scope of his epistles, it generally has a pretty particular meaning. And if we allow that meaning to be the meaning that we step into this word with, it's going to change how we understand verse 5, 6, and 7. And I think it's going to be the right way to understand it. You can judge that for yourself. The word itself, koinonia, is found two other times in the book of Philippians. The first is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, and then he exhorts them naturally in, in chapter 2 unto the mind of Christ. If there is any partnership or if there is any fellowship among the Spirit within us, do this thing. Now that one sounds significantly more like salvation to me, right? The idea of that we have the fellowship in the Spirit. Rather than just fellowship in the Gospel, fellowship in the Spirit. And then Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. As Paul speaks to him His own desire to count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So both of the times this word is used, it speaks, as we would expect, to a measure of participation together in something. Chapter 2, participation with him in the Spirit of God, that they are co-participants in the Spirit of God. And then he exhorts them to be like-minded. Chapter 3, Paul is giving a personal testimony of his determination to count all things but loss and says that in, in doing so, he would desire above all desires that he might know God, know the power of his resurrection, and participate, be a fellow participant in his suffering. Not that he had a martyrdom complex, but that he might draw close to the Lord and participate in the Lord's work even participating, if need be, in the, Lord, in the results that, that Christ experienced. In this, Paul reflects upon the teaching of Jesus in John fifteen twenty, when Jesus said, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So Paul, when he sees the persecution for the gospel of Jesus Christ, he recognizes that as a means by which he is fellowshipping, co-participating with Christ in his suffering. And to that end, he says, well, the servant is not greater than his master. It is enough that I am as my master. And he finds joy. So we find precedent for the idea that fellowship this partnership or participation in the gospel might have something to do with their mindset and determination, but I think there's yet an even closer link that we can draw based upon the tone of this book as to the nature of the fellowship of which Paul speaks. He makes particular mention in this verse about how they had fellowshiped in the gospel with him from the first day until now, Right? So now we have this idea of the Gospel. And if we were to look at salvation, I'd say that that's probably more of the Philippians 2 idea of fellowship in the Spirit. What about the Gospel? What is the Gospel? When Paul speaks of the Gospel, the the bearing of good news, right? The proclamation of the good news and then the living out of that good news. He makes particular mention of this idea, the first day until now, that though it has been 10 years since they had initially been in the church, he has felt the effects of their partnership regularly. Now, as Paul has gone on through his ministry, he went to Corinth, and uh, he, he did a third missionary journey, and he ended up in Jerusalem, and then he was shipwrecked, and then he ended up in Rome, and all of these things that took place, how is it that Paul would call that the Philippian church partnering with him in the gospel. It could be that they're up there doing their thing for the gospel, and he's down here doing his thing for the gospel, and so he says they're partners in the gospel. But could there be a closer link? And this compels a very similar idea to that which Paul speaks of in chapter 4. And this is where we really start to see things open up here. Verses 10 through 16. Paul Paul says in Philippians 4, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. So he says, Your care of me has flourished again. He's speaking of the fact that they sent him provision. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. For I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere, and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, notwithstanding, ye have done well in that ye did communicate with my affliction. Notice that word there, communicate, it's highlighted. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me, here it is, as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Take note of that word, communicated. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. So as we get to the end of this passage, we recognize that Paul is speaking of material provision, right? that they have once and again sent unto him to help him with the material provision. And notice these two words. The first word there, that first communicate that we see in verse 14 is the word sugkoinoneo, which is the verb form with a prepositional prefix, which means with. So in other words, to fellowship with is what that word means, to co-participate. So he says, notwithstanding you have done well in that you did co-fellowship with me in my affliction. What's he speaking of? How did they co-fellowship with him in his affliction? It doesn't mean they're suffering up there in Philippi, though they may have been. This is about them sending him money, provision. And then, again, in verse 15, he says, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. That's the word koinoneo. It's simply the verb form of our word here, koinonia. to participate. And so we find here that Paul defines his usage of the word specifically in chapter 4 to be referencing the fact that they helped him financially, materially along his way. And what Paul is saying here is that by helping me in my times of need you helped further the gospel. You helped me. I helped others. So you helped others. You helped me. Because you gave to me, I was able to spend more time sharing the gospel. People received the gospel. That helped them. And Paul will say this explicitly in chapter 4. He says, not that I want stuff for me, but I want blessings on your account. Right? He'll say that explicitly. We'll get there later. And so we see this interesting thing about this word communicate these are two Greek words, uh, different Greek words, right? You have synchononeo and then koinoneo. But they're both cognates, there's that word again, of that word fellowship, koinonia. The same word, only in verb form or with a prepositional prefix. Pastor, why are you giving us a grammar lesson? You, I really want you to get this because I, I think it's important to understanding these, ver- uh, these verses, I really do. Paul is using the same verb, and as he's using, or the same word, just in verb form, and as he's using it, he's speaking directly. When he says that they fellowship with him, he's speaking of giving and receiving. And this is not uncommon in the Bible. Consider Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. Be kindly affection one to another, with brotherly love and honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit serving the Lord rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation continuing instant in prayer distributing there's our word in verb form to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality so Paul says in Romans 12 koinoneo to the necessity of the saints fellowship with the necessity of the saints he's saying give to them right? just translated distribute Romans 15 we see it again verse 25 through 27 26 through 27 For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution, that's the word koinonia, the same one that we see in Philippians 1, to make a certain contribution, a certain fellowship for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers, that's that word koinonia, to fellowship one with another, if they have been made fellowshippers of the spiritual things, their duty also is to minister unto them in carnal things. Once again, Romans 15, Paul is telling the church what his plans are. His next steps would be a journey to Jerusalem, after which he wants to meet them in Rome on his way to Spain. And in these verses, he's explaining why he's going to Jerusalem, because the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, that would be Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and, and perhaps Athens if one ever got going there, and Corinth, Right? These churches wanted to make a certain fellowship or a contribution to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Then in verse 27, Paul reasons that if the Gentiles have been made fellowshippers of spiritual things, that, they have, that the, the church in Jerusalem, by means of sending the gospel out throughout the Roman Empire, have contributed to their spiritual things, then they should contribute or fellowship to these material things. Also in 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God, for the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Paul is exhorting the Corinthian church here to give to that particular Jerusalem offering here. So we're kind of going back in time where he's telling the church, give to this, And then when he's writing to Rome, uh, he says, I've got this to take to Jerusalem. Whilst the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution. There's our word koinonia, distribution, fellowship, unto them and unto all men, and by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. So again, we see in 2 Corinthians, this is our third time here where Paul has used that word and twice the actual substantive in question in Philippians 1, koinonia, to speak towards giving. We see it in Galatians chapter 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. This is the same concept. Bless the person who's teaching you Materially, as he blesses you physically. We know that that's the the context of Galatians 6. If you look through the context, that's what's being said there. And once again, it is this word, koinonia. How about Hebrews 13, verse 6? But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Koinonia. This is probably the least clear of the examples, but there'd be a, a good precedent to believe that what Paul is saying here is... Do good and and, and be generous, right? Don't forget to do that. Now, I've taken all the time to give you all of these examples to bring you back to verse 5 of Philippians 1, that he thanks them for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. In chapter 4, he is going to use the cognates of this word to say that they gave to him once and again to his needs. We're going to see in verse 7 that there is a, a deep allusion to the fact that he is thankful to them for how they've provided for him. And I truly believe that this is the context here, that this is what Paul means when he says, you have fellowshiped with me in the gospel. How is it that the church participated with Paul in the gospel? The clearest link I can draw, I believe is that they participated with him in the gospel by, as Paul said in chapter 4, giving to his needs, thus enabling him to continue the work of the gospel by facilitating his well-being through monetary support. And I believe this makes the most sense by far within this context and within the scope of the word he used and within the scope of Philippians. And I've spent all this time defending this line of thinking because I, as I said, am in the minority here of interpretation. I was looking for other people that had this interpretation, and I found a couple, and one of the people I flipped through was Jay Vernon McGee. And it turns out that J. Vernon McGee's favorite verse in the entire Bible is Philippians 1.6, and it's because he did not interpret it the way I'm interpreting it, so I thought, well, he's probably not on board with me um, because it's his favorite verse, and that's not going to work for, for him. Um, but... So so do take note of that. I'm in the minority here. If you walk away saying, Pastor, I don't really like your interpretation. Well, you are, you've got a lot of people that agree with you on that. But that's why I spent so much time walking through all of that text. All of those verses. Because this is common. Paul used this word fellowship commonly to speak of giving. And Philippians is a thank you letter to them for giving to him. That makes sense to me. Why is it such a big deal, Pastor? Why do we have to care that much? It's like, what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. There's only 12 words in this verse. Why are you making such a big You You've probably shared more verses about the word fellowship than there are words in this verse. Why does it matter so much? Again, because of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's not about verse 5, it's about verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This verse is an important verse for many Christians. The standard interpretation of this is that Paul is rejoicing over their common salvation, their fellowship in the gospel, and so he reflects a deep and abiding confidence that God, the God who saved them, will continue to work the work which he has begun in them until the day of Jesus Christ, that they will continue to be sanctified until the day when Jesus returns and takes them home. And it's a beautiful and fully theologically consistent idea that the work which God began the moment His Holy Spirit indwells us will continue and that God is always working in us because sometimes we lose heart in God's ability to use us or we lose heart in our own progression in the Christian faith and to be reminded that in God's word that God is persistently loving us and His determination to sanctify us is so strong that He will continue the work that He's begun in us is as reassuring as it is beautiful to our faith. And as I said, we do know this to be true, don't we? Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 tells us that it's true. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those who have stepped into Jesus Christ are predestinated to be conformed to his image, right? He's going to sanctify us that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So we see it there, that God is working out the process of sanctification in those who have accepted Christ as their savior. We see it in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, right? So those who have accepted Christ as their Savior have been chosen in Christ to be holy and without blame before him in love. Wouldn't you know it? All of these Calvinist passages are actually just telling us that we're being sanctified, right? That's what these are telling us. They have nothing to do with us being chosen for salvation. They have us who are chosen being chosen and, and predestined unto holiness, Right? having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise and the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, right? We're created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He's ordained that we walk in these works. We've been, new bo- we've been born again, created in Christ Jesus unto these good works. He will continue the work he's, pr- he, he's begun in us. So all of these passages speak to this reality that God is sanctifying us and he will continue to sanctify us until the day he takes us home, at which point we will stand before him holy and without blame before, in love, right? But I'm just not convinced that Philippians 1 verse 6 is telling us that. I believe what these verses are saying is that every time Paul kneels to pray for these churches, there wells up in him a particular and a unique degree of thanksgiving because of the fellowship, the remembrance of this church in Philippi, and the unique fellowship that they have with him in the Gospel because they are the only church, according to Philippians 1 verse 6, that met his need time and time again throughout the years of his ministry in the Gospel. And to this end, Paul exudes a confidence that the work which God began through their generosity will continue, that the seeds that planted, that were planted and the, and the souls that were won because of their generosity toward Paul will ripple from generation to generation of born-again believers, and that until the day of Jesus Christ, there will be the spiritual fingerprints of their church, the church of Philippi, upon the entire world. And that because they partnered with Paul in the gospel of Jesus Christ by meeting his needs. Now, there is one notable objection to this interpretation. He that hath begun a good work, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. Not through them or by them, the text says in them. And that throws a kink in this, right? The work that Paul is saying was being performed was not by means of their money to him but in them so how does that reconcile well in our King James English it doesn't the King James translators chose the most general word here for the preposition at hand in and they do that regularly that they choose the most broad sweeping preposition in order to give the Holy Spirit the largest canvas upon which to paint so that they're not interpreting something into the text. They use the most broad and ambiguous word possible. By all accounts, it was the safest and most general word to use and I'm glad they used it. But, the Greek construction, which is this preposition N plus the dative, can just as easily be a word that indicates means, by means of, as it does indicate location, in you. Both are entirely valid in the Greek. In other words, it is just as valid in the Greek, not in, not in the King James per se, but in the Greek, for me to read this, he which hath begun a good work by means of you, as it is he that hath begun a good work in you. Both of them are just as valid with the preposition used there. It's a very, very common, very general, very standard preposition. Very broad preposition. To this end, we find that Paul is giving the glory to God for what God has begun by means of the sacrificial giving of the Church of Philippi to Paul throughout the course of the last decade. You say, Pastor, I'm not convinced. That preposition is just a hang up to me. That's fine. You're, again, you're in the ma- majority if you decide that. But I don't know that it means that. I'm not convinced. I believe that Paul is glorifying the Lord here and telling the church that their once and again gifts to him, sustaining his ministry for the last decade, the only church that did so in Thessalonica, the only church that did so in Corinth, has redounded to the work of the gospel throughout the known world and will continue as we trace the gospel from person to person to person throughout history until the day of Jesus Christ. And that, in my opinion, is what Paul is saying in this verse. And that will form the basis of my application in a few moments. Um, but first, let's finish verse 7. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. Once again, there's that word sug koinonas. A, co- a cognate word here, a co participant. Within the scope of my interpretation of this passage, this verse falls very nicely into place. That Paul thanks God for them and is brought to great joy for the church because he cares for them so deeply and is so appreciative of them because they care for him and they've shown it. Since both in his bonds in Rome and in the years. Before Rome, when he was busy about the defense and confirmation of the gospel, they have been co-participants in his grace, in his ministry, in his calling through giving. So that Paul is saying that the church of Philippi, as they have provided for and helped him, are co-participants not just in his ministry, but in the rewards of that ministry. And that's how we're going to apply today. And I want to again mention that while I'm not alone in this conviction, I very rarely will bring something into the pulpit if I can't find anyone that agrees with me. Uh, It's happened once or twice. Some of my teaching on divorce is that way. But I'm not alone in this conviction. I am very much in the minority. I've been wrong before. I will be wrong again. I've done my best to show you why I'm thinking what I'm thinking to lead you through why I believe what I believe and how I've come to the conclusions which I have in regard to this interpretation. I don't want to burst a bunch of bubbles. I don't want you going to anyone that has this as their life verse and telling them that their life verse is built on a foundation of sand and that they need to rethink their life or anything of the sort, right? It's not that big of a deal, except that I think this is what the Bible's saying. So I've got to tell you what I think the Bible's saying here. There will be many who disagree with me And that's fine, and we can all look forward to the day when God makes all things known, when this Lord's Supper becomes the Supper with our Lord, and all things are known, and we're in the unity of the Spirit, and we can figure out what it meant. Until that day, let's not split the church over this one. When we speak of the legacy of the gospel, we understand that if we were to trace our spiritual lineage, it would go back all the way to the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? you know when we think of lineage I trace my lineage and I can trace my lineage primarily to the New York Philadelphia area and then to the northern Kentucky area and then if I trace that lineage it's to a city in Poland and one city in Austria and I can trace that lineage and it gets a little muddy around the Holocaust because much of my family were Austrian Jews, so a lot of them were killed um, on my dad's side, but, um, but things get a little muddy, but then we can, trace, we can trace it back, and it's so much fun to trace your family history back. Well, when you think about it and you say, wow, I'm related to so-and-so, or I'm the, you know, so, so-and-so was the third cousin of so-and-so who knew so-and-so, and, you know, you can see these connections. The fact of the matter is spiritually we have a lineage that can be traced all the way back to the apostles of Jesus Christ, to our Lord himself, an unbroken line of faith from somebody to somebody else to somebody else to you. We have a part in that thread. We form a link in that chain. And by God's grace, each of us has the privilege of being a part of God, continuing this work, forming new links around us as people believe the gospel. And I think that that's a pretty neat application. Paul presents a concept here that he is confident that the work begun in them would continue. That the support that they gave to Paul as he traveled around the world, the love and encouragement that they gave to him and their own labors in and around Philippi would continue until the day of Christ. That the one drop of the gospel that they dropped into the pool of this world through the giving that they gave to Paul and each of those little drops that he was able to drop into the pool of this world would have a ripple effect upon tens, hundreds, thousands of lives from generation to generation to generation. We talk about this with our children, do we not? That it's the name of our church, that we are building a legacy, a legacy that gets carried on from generation to generation. It's why we're here, it's what we're doing. Little can anyone know the effects of the gospel in the ears of the hearers. Little can anyone know, when we step into glory, how many people, You will see there where you, through a conversation, through a a note, through a, a tract that you handed out, who will be in heaven, and you were a part of the chain that brought them to that grace. Even in conversations that didn't seem very profitable. I spoke to you of that young lady several years ago in the jail who got saved the day after I had that conversation with her and I shared the gospel with her. That conversation, I, I, I kept, I, I keep all my notes, but I've got in the record, it says on that day, not, not a very profitable conversation, was not very receptive. The next day, she accepts Christ as her Savior. I didn't know that it was a profitable conversation. I didn't know that she was listening. She was listening. It rooted itself in her heart through the Holy Spirit. Something happened. Little can we know what effects those little drops can have when they ripple outward. Little can we know what effect supporting that single missionary for just those few dollars that you might send could possibly have. Little can you know what effect simply staying faithful to that ministry that you're a part of, to that church you're a part of, can have. Little can we know the effect of staying in touch with someone or reconnecting with someone of whom we've fallen out of touch can have. Little can we know the effect of remaining vigilant, even just in prayer, for a friend or for a loved one. But we can be confident of this very thing, that the one who began a good work will continue it. He'll continue it in us. He'll continue his work through us, by means of us. It is in this spirit that Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58 and he says this: Therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your work is never wasted in the Lord. It's never wasted. The call to be steadfast, the call to be unmovable, always abounding, it is not a call rooted in how much fruit you see, it is not a call rooted in how much you observe the effects of your labor. It is a call rooted in a measure of confidence by faith that your labor is not wasted that the good work begun through our labors will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. And little do we know, indeed little can we know, just what God can do if we would be willing to invest ourselves in the labor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul tells the church that they are partakers of his grace by virtue of their fellowship with him in the gospel. And this is what we would all desire. Why is it that we as a church support missionaries through prayer and giving for this reason? Why is it that we as a church faithfully attend and exhort one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching for this reason? Why is it that we as a church are encouraged to take tracts and to take Bibles and to freely distribute them and to go out into this world and to win your neighbors and to win your friends to find the means by which to to express the gospel? It's for this reason. Because this fellowship encourages the believer. This fellowship enables the minister And finally, this fellowship bears fruit and roots us firmly in God's grace. Even the extent to which this church supports me so that I don't have to be bivocational matters. In the extent to which I can study, in the extent to which I can go out and I can do the jail and I can do the good news club and all of these things are facilitated by you. To this end, we are called to maintain an open and willing hand to labor, to pray, to give to the work of the gospel because only God knows just how far your drop of the gospel or your enabling of someone else to put a drop of the gospel into the pool of this world through labor, through prayer, through giving, little can you know what kind of ripple that might have in eternity. But our confidence should echo Paul's. That we know, regardless of what we've seen, we can know, we can be confident that he who hath begun this good work by means of our labor, by means of our generosity, by means of our faithfulness, by means of our prayers, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer.